This morning, as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm concerned that though we are living in a culture and a county that has the imprint of Christianity on our past, it would be difficult to argue that biblical Christianity really explains who we are and what we believe today. Now, that sentence wouldn't be particularly alarming if it was simply in reference to the culture at large. The trouble is that even among those who profess to be Christians, it would be difficult to make the argument that lives are being lived in light of the judgment seat of Christ, as we considered last week in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. The trouble is that when we consider even the lives of the people who profess to be in Christ, are we truly marked by the way of Christ? Now, it's precisely this concern regarding the prevailing mood of spiritual mediocrity that drew me to explore church planting ministry in the first place. And ultimately, it led me to Brevard County and the planting of Cross Point Coast. Now, I believe that the scriptures are very clear that it's the spiritual responsibility of a minister of the gospel, not only to see that the lost are saved, but to see that those who are saved are increasingly growing in maturity in light of the gospel that has saved them. To put it another way, we believe at Cross Point Coast in evangelism. But we believe that evangelism, that is the application of the gospel to the human heart, isn't something that simply launches us on another road. We believe that evangelism, the application of the gospel to the human heart, is the road that we are on. This passage is Paul's continued defense of his ministry in 2 Corinthians. It's his defense of his ministry as he continues to labor in the church in Corinth for the maturity of the church who is there in this letter. It's also his plea for the believers there to join him in shaping their lives together around the reality of Christ and his gospel, so as to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. Now, in many ways, I think you could say that this morning's sermon is a defense of the ministry of Cross Point Coast. You can ask a few questions. Is it truly valid to labor to seek to disciple a congregation, a body of believers, by constantly holding them before them the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is it right to believe that it is not enough to simply get more people saved, but that the truly redeemed must be constantly showing the glory, must be constantly shown the glory of God and their need of the gospel? Is it right to warn those who profess to be Christians against both sin and complacency. In other words, is it right to be about gospel ministry in the life of the church? I think one of my core concerns as a pastor is something that Paul is driving at in today's passage. Because I know the gospel Because I know the sacrificial work of Jesus alone to die in the place of sinners. 
because I know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, and because I know that all believers will see Jesus face to face on his throne, and in that place all of their deeds will be laid bare, because God has loved his church and given himself up for her, because I know the reconciling work of Jesus Christ, and because I know that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. I am zealous to see Christ's church transformed into a discipleship community of joyful worshipers. That is, I'm zealous to see you and I together increasingly controlled by Christ's love for us so that we live our lives pleasing to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I pray that you would use your word this morning to impress upon us the beauty of your words work among your people. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't only see the beauty of your word, but that your word would actually work among us today. And that the proclamation of your gospel, the remembering of Christ and his cross and his resurrection the reality that you are enthroned as judge and redeemer and eternal king, Lord, that these things would have an effect upon your church today and all who would hear and participate in this dispersed gathering, Lord, all would be impressed by your gospel unto faith. Lord, we know that if you would do this, it would be a work of your mercy and grace. And so we cry out to you for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What I want to do before we continue looking through our verses this morning is I want to just step back and ask, what is the purpose of the whole of the passage this morning? And I would argue that the purpose of the whole of the passage is to persuade the believers in Corinth, and by extension all believers, to live our lives in light of the transformation that the gospel has worked in all believers. That we would live our lives in light of the work that the gospel has done in us. That we would live in light of the implications of the reality of what Christ has done for us, his grace, his mercy, his transforming work, his forgiveness, the hope that we have of eternal life. Because at the very core of the reality of the gospel is the reality that Christ has loved us sufficiently and sacrificially. In light of this, this means that we must live lives that are concerned for the spiritual vitality of our fellow believers. Now, this is a thread that weaves its way throughout the whole of the Scriptures, and particularly we see it at work in the New Testament. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20 says this, My brothers, If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What this means is it is right and good 
that we are concerned for the spiritual vitality of our brothers and sisters. It is right that we would have our hearts bend toward those who are wandering. Now, it's one thing for us to be emotionally bent toward those who are wandering. It is another to go in our bending with gospel proclamation. That we would proclaim the gospel just as we see the Apostle Paul do here when we see our brothers and sisters wandering off. Note how Paul goes about the plea. Two times in this morning's passage, we see Paul breaks into a profound explanation of the gospel in verses 14 and 15, and again in verse 21. The the means of his plea, the way in which he goes after his brothers and sisters in Corinth is to preach the gospel. For the Apostle Paul, there is no other way. Today, what I want to do is I want to look at the plea that he makes. And we're going to do that this morning in our passage by looking primarily at verses 11 through 15. And then when we gather again next week, we will pay attention to the way that Paul works to proclaim the gospel and look more closely at what is this gospel that he proclaims in verses 14 and 15 and verse 21 next week. For now, let's begin in verse 11. Look at it with me. Please follow along. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Now, it's interesting that our passage begins this morning by moving forward, by looking back. Look at verse 10 with me. Verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, our salvation has a goal. It has an end, and that goal is not simply that we do not go to hell. Consider Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We have been saved to a way in which we can walk. There is a goal that God himself has in mind in doing the work that is by grace, through faith, and has an end for the believer to walk. God's goal in salvation is that we would be truly and completely transformed unto his glory. This is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit to apply the reality of what has been purchased by Christ in his gospel to our daily lives and our heart's affections. Therefore, knowing that we will appear before Christ, our concern is that our lives would look like the purpose for which we were saved. I'll say it again. If if we will be brought before Christ, and God has a purpose for which he is working salvation in us to bring us to Christ, our concern ought to be that when we appear there, We look like the purpose for which we were saved. 
we have a new aim in life. And that new aim is that we would please the one who has saved us. So the fear of the Lord is very simply this. The fear of the Lord is the fear of falling short of this new goal, our new heart-transformed aim of pleasing God. We fear that our lives would be aimed to please anyone else but our Redeemer. Now, let's compare the fear of the Lord in our passage this morning. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, it says, let us compare that in our passage with the way that the fear of the Lord is spoken about in 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, has a pretty extended uh, passage on the fear of God. Here's how it puts it. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected within us so that we have confidence for the day of judgment. That's important. The love of God for us has worked in such a way in the work of the gospel so that we can have confidence on the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. That's a very interesting contrast. First John refers to judgment. But let's pay attention to what sort of judgment it refers to. First John refers to judgment that condemns. God's love, which has freed us from the fear of judgment that condemns, has also freed us to love God. God has loved us so that we are no longer condemned, so that we are freed to love our God. This love of God and a desire to please him, even a fear that we might be found in the end not to have pleased him, causes us to love our neighbor. Because of the love of God, the fear of condemnation has been replaced by a holy fear that we would fail to please the one who has saved us. Specifically, Paul is making the argument in our passage this morning that the fear of the Lord would cause us to seek the spiritual vitality of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Even in 1 John, God said, whoever loves God must also love his brother. God has loved us. That love has freed us from the fear of condemnation. And because he has loved us, we have been freed to love him 
And because we love him, we seek to do that which pleases him. And he is pleased by our love of one another. Sam Storms puts it this way. Therefore, the fear of the Lord is not the fear of condemnation, but of less than notable commendation when our deeds are assessed on that day. Now that is powerfully really an explanation of a psalm. Psalm 34, verses 8 and 9, which puts it this way. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Now, what does it look like to take refuge in the, in the Lord, to run to him for safety and redemption, to, to, to be transformed by his love? What does that look like? Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. He is that great and mighty the shelter. He is the one on the throne, the king of the heavens, and we have taken shelter in him. So those who fear the Lord, you his saints, those who fear him have no lack. We who have taken refuge in the love of Christ and in his cross, fear the Lord such that we walk in his ways. And as we fear him and walk in him, we lack no good thing, neither now nor in eternity. Now, we're just in the first words of the passage so far. Verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord in light of the judgment seat of Christ, in the light of the redemption that we have as we've taken refuge in the shadow of his wing, we persuade others. Now, this is interesting. What is your first thought when you consider the judgment seat of Christ? I hope that your first thought should be Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This should be our first thought when we consider the judgment seat of Christ. But just after this, it is most reasonable, even godly, that we should think of ourselves. Have we and do we live lives that are pleasing to God so that when we see him, we can look to him and say, finally, I see what my life has longed for. This should be our Second thought. But Paul here offers a third therefore. Paul offers, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Knowing the reality of the judgment seat of Christ must cause us to quickly think not only of our redemption, not only of our desire to please the Lord, it ought also to quickly cause us to think of others. For it's not only ourselves who will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It is our brothers and sisters in Christ who will appear there. All who have taken a knee at the foot of the cross 
will also be gathered before that great seat in the heavenly places. Our minds ought to quickly go there. It's our brothers and sisters and Jesus who will be there. And this is at the heart of my concern for the congregation. One of the earliest convictions of this church is that a truly gospel-centered church requires a collection of gospel-centered households. It's not enough to be a good church. A good church is actually a collection of people who have been transformed by the goodness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Are we compelled to persuade others that their lives and their household would look shaped by a desire to please God. Right now, today, so much has been stripped away. In the coming days, even more may be stripped away. We are so dispersed, unable to gather And yet in this moment, I believe the mission of this church, the character of this church, is being tested. Are we actually a collection of transformed and transforming households? Is this who we are? Are we households that pray? Or are we just a church that prays when we look more like what the culture would call a church? Are we households that know the gospel, or do we depend on leaders to know that? Are we households that have the glory of God and the beauty of the way of Christ at the center of all that we do? Are are we beside ourselves, unsure of what to do when everything else is stripped away. Do each of you know how to point other people in your household to Jesus Christ? Do you labor with the other people in your household to pray for and point your friends and neighbors to Jesus Christ? Most importantly, when all is stripped away, do you yourself know Jesus? Is your aim, your desire in life to live pleasing to him? Now, the passage continues, verse 12 and 13. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. We've seen a number of times in 2 Corinthians already that there are supposed ministers, Christian ministers of the gospel who are puffing themselves up in the eyes of the Corinthian church. And they're doing so by pointing to their skills. They're pointing to their standing according to the values Of the culture. Paul is arguing that the true minister of Christ is commended by Christ alone. That is, his life, his ministry will look like foolishness to the world. He simply won't measure up to the values of the world because 
He has a different set of values. His plea is that the Corinthians would look to the heart of his ministry and how it is compelled by the way of Christ. In this moment, when so much else is stripped away, we have the opportunity to evaluate our households. So many things that we have longed for, so many things that perhaps would rightly be called idols in our lives. We have been denied access to. Are we fitting? Are we raging? Are we worried? Are we scared in the middle of those things? Or do we have a peace because we have an eternal home in the heavens and a Redeemer who is on the throne today and a judgment seat in which there is no condemnation and a reward for those who live lives pleasing to our God that we have the gospel? This is an opportunity for us to ask, what is our good pleasure? Verse 13, he says, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Now, it's interesting. If we are beside ourselves, what does that mean? Jesus, when he first began his preaching ministry, he was accused by his own family of being beside himself, or as the translator puts it in Mark 3.21, he's out of his mind, the passage says. The Apostle Paul himself, he was brought before King Agrippa and the governor Festus in Acts 26. And there the Apostle Paul, he's going about preaching the gospel. He says, Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. He's busy preaching the gospel among these worldly leaders. And Festus' response is this, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. In many ways, this is the whole point that Paul is making. The person who is compelled by the love of Christ simply isn't compelled by the ways of the world. And that looks like foolishness to the world. He's going to look like a fool. He's going to look reckless. He's going to look weak. But he's not living to please the world because he knows ultimately he will not be judged by the world. He's not being brought before ultimately the seat of a governor or a king on this earth. He has in his mind the judgment seat of Christ. And so he lives in light of that judgment and seeks to please that king, considers his way, the love that that king has had for him, then compels him to love the brothers and sisters. So Paul is pleading with the Corinthians to consider the way of Christ as they evaluate his ministry, not the values of the world. It is, after all, for the sake of the Corinthians that he has endeavored in this ministry to begin with. He puts it one other way, verse 14. In verse 14, he says, For the love of Christ controls us. For the love of Christ controls. I tell you, that is worth an underline in the scriptures. It's worth a big asterisk in the margin. Such a precious 
passage, for the love of Christ controls us. The word controls literally calls to mind the idea of being hemmed in on either side. Our lives are given boundaries by the love of Christ. The way of Christ is a road that has edges to it. To walk in the way of Christ is to be hemmed in. This way, this road is hemming us in. It controls the way in which we walk. For the love of Christ controls us. So what is the way? It's the love of Christ, or Christ's love for us has laid out for us a way that must be obvious to us to walk. He goes on to define that love. He tells us what Christ's love for us is. He tells us that it is that he has died for us. Therefore, our death has been died. Our death has been accomplished. That is why there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the condemnation has already been laid upon the Christ for us. That's what Christ's love looks like. So we no no longer live for ourselves, he says. Our lives have been rescued. Our lives have been ransomed. We live for the sake of the one who has died for us and rose for us. We live to please Christ because he loved us in that way. The way of the gospel of Jesus Christ has hemmed us in to this way of desiring to please our new king. At Cross Point Coast, we often think of our lives uh, as the contribution of our time, our talent, and our treasure. In the days in which we live right now, we have a lot of time to think about our time, our talent, and our treasure, and to consider how those are being leveraged. How does the love of Christ compel how we leverage these three aspects of our lives? Do our lives make an argument that in our time, in our talent, and in our treasure, we have been loved by Christ? Do we live lives that look like they have been hemmed in by the sacrificial and sufficient love of Christ in the gospel? And so I would ask you this. What constrains your choices? What has hemmed you in? I've often heard it said that a person in making a decision in life felt like they had no other choice. It was the only choice that was available to me. I was hemmed in. I was bound and compelled to this. It's the only choice I had. About what could you say I had no other choice? Do you live as though you have no choice given Christ's sacrificial, redeeming love for you, that you have no choice but to live a life that is pleasing to him. It's the only life that's available. It's the only choice that I had. I have been loved by Christ. I have been rescued from the wrath of 
God that prohibited me from a life with my creator. I have been redeemed to a new king. How can I but serve him? How can I but look for the day that I would stand before that judge? I have been hemmed in. Do you understand that this means that you must be compelled, therefore, to seek the spiritual welfare and vitality of your brothers and sisters in Christ? You see, I I find that it's not too terribly difficult to realize that because Christ has died for me, I must live for him. But it seems to be so easy to forget that that means the giving of my life for the brothers and sisters in Christ. That I would pursue their spiritual vitality. That's why Paul says at the beginning of our passage, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing he has no other option but to live to to please Jesus, we persuade others of the good news of Jesus Christ. Verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. One has died for all, therefore all have died. These verses tell us who we are. These verses give us the way in which we walk. We are a people who are together in Christ. We are together in his death, and we are together in his resurrection. Our death was died in him, and our life together as a church, as brothers and sisters, God our Father, Christ our brother, filled with the one Spirit, have been hemmed into one way to walk together. And it's not just that Jesus has given us a good example. It's not just that he's gotten us started on the way of good deeds. James Denny offers it this way. He's not simply a person doing us a good service. It's not simply that we can say, yeah, thanks, Jesus, for doing that gospel thing. It really got me a good second chance. Now I'll live a better life. He's not simply a person doing us a service. He is a person doing us a service by filling our place and dying our death. Do we understand the position that we were in? prior to the death of Jesus Christ in our place? Do we understand that in our sin and rebellion against God, we are his enemies? We are the objects of his wrath. We are rightly condemned to die. But by grace, through faith, we can be united to the death of Jesus so that our sins can be forgiven and we can be given new life in him. Friends, next week we'll we'll look at that in more detail, particularly in the second half of the portion of our passage this morning. But this morning, let us just consider how Jesus' death actually changes our life. It changes our experience of impending judgment. Judgment's coming. 
But for the one who is in Christ, there's no condemnation. There's only the desire to please the judge. Because he's not just our judge. He's our savior and our king. He's our redeemer. Instead of condemnation, we have hope of reward. And so we, please, we live to please him. Really, the question is this this morning for us at Cross Point Coast, and really for all of us who may be listening this morning, are we a collection of households concerned for the spiritual vitality of brothers and sisters this morning? Are our minds wandering over the names of those we know who are in Christ? Are we considering this morning, even as we go to prayer in just a moment, are we considering, Lord God, show me what it looks like to love my brothers and sisters today? Not only those that I am naturally inclined to go to, but those that by the grace of Christ you have united me with in this county and around the world. Let us go to the Lord and let us ask him that question that we would be transformed today by the love of Christ. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you would work in your church, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you have loved us, would compel us to love our brothers and sisters. Even the way that you have loved us would change the way that we think and we live and we love because we have been loved as a body. We have been loved particularly by Christ. His death is for each one. You have also loved us as a church to bring us to the Father present us before him blameless and clean because of the work of your grace. I pray that you would work in us right now, that you would even bring to mind names of those who may be on the edges, who, who may have wandered off, to, that perhaps even to this moment, to our error, have been forgotten and uncared for. Lord, would you send us, as the good shepherd, would you send us to go and get our brothers and sisters? Would you compel us, in view of the fear of the Lord, to persuade others? Thank you, Lord. We trust you that you would work this in each one of our households, that you would send us to go to seek and save the lost, and that we would love the brotherhood, the church, your people. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Would you inhabit our ministry together? Amen. We have an opportunity this morning to walk as the church together, to, to remember what has made us one. Typically on a Sunday morning, we would take communion at this time. And it is communion because it is a community together around one meal together, set by Christ himself, his broken body in the bread, his blood poured out in the cup, that we would remember 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice that has made us one. This morning we do so simply, spiritually, in remembering because we are unable to gather, but he has still made us one. And so it's appropriate that we would remember this morning. And as I read the words from 1 Corinthians 11, which tells us about this supper that we would remember this morning, we re- may we remember that we are a body together, that we are a people by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ that has made us one. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And in these days in which we are longing to be together again, may that only increase our longing. Lord Jesus, come quickly so that we can be your church, not just gathered again as a church in an elementary school cafeteria, but may we be gathered to your throne by your broken body and shed blood that has given us life forever. Amen.